What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is the complete Sinner's Guide. And after being gone so long for two weeks, it is so good to be back with, always, like always, I got my co-host, Noah Chilaya, with me. Buddy, what is going on? Hey, Tyler. I'm better than I deserve. Had an excellent Independence Day celebrating our freedom here in America. But excited to be back on the Complete Sinner's Guide. It, it, a break is nice, but it's always good to get back. Kind of like going on vacation. you got to get away for a little bit, but it's always good to come back home. You know what I mean? And tonight, we've got a very, very special guest. Mr. Robert Wiesner is on, and we're going to be discussing eternal conscious punishment. And for those, so if you've been listening to the show now for a little while, you've noticed that I have had Chris Date on uh, a couple times, more than a couple, like four or five, and he's a proponent of what is called conditional immortality. And so we had him on with Ross Burns. They did a debate. Ross held to eternal conscious punishment as well. Um, and so I just wanted to give eternal conscious punishment um, more. I, I wanted to go more in depth with it because this is something that I am really focusing on. This has probably been a primary uh, study of mine ever since I first talked to Chris about a year ago. It Whenever I first heard him, he just made so many good sounding arguments that I, I, I had to dive deeper into this. I didn't give it a thought to begin with. And I'm and I'm glad I did. Like I'm glad that I really started diving into this topic because it is an important topic, um, and, and we need to be, in my opinion, we need to be familiar with all doctrines, not just soteriology, not just eschatology, not just, right? We need to be familiar with what the to total of Scripture says. And so this is all God's Word, and so these are doctrines that have been put together by godly men, right? And, and, and Jesus taught them, and the apostles, and all the way down. And so we need to study what they said. We need to we need to just dive into God's word. Um, even if you're not studying theology, so to say, you you are whenever you're whenever you're studying God's word. But even if you're just reading it for fun or or anything like that, we need as Christians in the 21st century. I think we need to be more saturated with God's word. Right. And so I've invited Robert on to give um, what what is eternal conscious punishment? Why is this biblical? Why do why do people like Chris not hold to this doctrine? I, I wanted to give eternal conscious punish, punishment a fair shake. And so, like I said, I've invited Robert Wiesner on to do that. And Robert, um, for those who don't know you, just give us a little intro of yourself. And why is it that, I mean, you've heard all the arguments, or, well, most of the arguments, I'm sure, for conditional immortality. Why aren't you holding to it yet? No, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, right. but, but why do you hold to eternal conscious punishment? And, and what, where would you, I mean, I know I'm giving a lot of questions here at the first, but where would you go to really show eternal conscious punishment in the Bible. And we'll get into this later, but Robert, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, man, go for it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, good to be back. I had a lot of fun the last time uh, I was on, um, you know, talking about the millennium. And, and really, this is very much related. This is a, an issue of eschatology, uh, what sometimes we might call personal eschatology as a, opposed to, you know, cosmic uh, eschatology or, or something like that. But a uh, little bit about myself. Uh, I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm a, a very theologically minded, uh, try to be exegetically careful kind of pastor. Uh, so uh, I, I do have a for, forthcoming uh, article being published on what Revelation teaches 
about hell, um, where I've, I've tried to document extensively uh, how to read the book of Revelation uh, and its its visions of, of eschatological punishment and um, uh, make a case for why I continue to, to hold to uh, what I call, rather than eternal torment, uh, eternal punishment or eternal conscious punishment. Uh, which, you know, we could flesh out the nuances with that uh, as we go. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you know, you had Chris on, Chris Date. He's a friend, uh, Facebook friend. We've actually never met in person, but uh, I've, I've been on his show and uh, discussing other other issues. And uh, he's a really smart guy, uh, a really nice guy. Uh, he, he goes about sharing his views and discussing alternative views the right way. <clears throat> And uh, like I said, he's he's a smart guy, and so he makes arguments uh, that I I think sound uh, cogent and and can sound pretty compelling, especially the first time that you hear them. And, uh, a little bit of my background with this is I uh, became a Christian when I was a teenager, and I just always assumed the eternal uh, torment view because that was kind of the the popular vision. That's that's the Christian view, right? Sure. Um, and then uh, when I uh, was in when I was being discipled as a young adult, and then eventually I ended up uh, going to Bible college, and uh, you know I have a I have a bachelor's degree in biblical studies and a master's degree in New Testament studies. Um, when when I got to Bible college, I had a professor who was the first Bible believing uh, person who who I ever knew who, who very strongly argued against uh, you know the traditional eternal conscious torment view. Uh, in favor of conditional immortality. And looking back on it, some of his arguments were, were better than others, but, uh, just, you know, rattling off the evidence, you know, just, just talking about texts where, uh, the, the simple language of destruction or, or, or death is, is what's used to describe, uh, some kind of coming punishment, uh, for the unrighteous. That can sound, uh, very compelling. And, uh, you just, you just stack up the numbers and, and it's a significant amount of texts that are going to get cited. And, um, uh, so you can understand why that's, uh, an increasingly popular view and a number of really good biblical scholars. Some of my favorites like, uh, F.F. Bruce or, or Richard Bauckham, uh, hold to that view. And, uh, they're, they're really impressive, you know, big name, uh, trailblazing scholars, you know, so, so there's a lot of good reasons to, to consider the view. Uh, I don't consider it a, uh, uh, heterodox view. I think it's, I think it's very much within the realms of orthodoxy and it doesn't offend me or bother me if somebody, uh, holds to that view. Again, Chris is a, a friend and, uh, I've had lots of friends who hold that view. And, uh, to be honest, I kind of hope it's true, uh, because, uh, the, the, the picture that, that we get of eternal torment, uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, frankly is disturbing. And I think that's, that's what it's intended to be is, is, is shocking and, and, and disturbing. And if we're not bothered by that, whether we believe it or not, if we're not bothered by that, um, then we need to, uh, we need to, you know, have a look in the mirror and figure out why, like, you know, as though other people are deserving of that, and I myself am not. No, uh, it's it should be disturbing. It, it should shock Absolutely. us a little bit. So, uh, in, in part, I I kind of hope that mm. that um, conditional immortality is right and that I'm wrong, but but I don't think it is, and I don't think I am. Um, so yeah, I, I you know that's I, I could sketch out my my case if you want biblically, or um, if if you wanted to go anywhere else before before we do that. I just, I do, I have one question. Why eternal sure. conscious punishment and not eternal yeah, conscious yeah. torment? Yeah, I, I think the language of torment almost, 
gives the wrong impression where so so torment is involved um whether you know psychological or spiritual or or very literal and and physical which um you know i i incline toward the former and in, in thinking that that's what's being conveyed with the imagery um but uh torment you know it, it kind of gives the idea of of god as uh sadistic you know the 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 idea that that he's torturing innocent people who who don't deserve such harsh treatment and that sort of thing and and really what what i think we're trying to say is that uh if this is the biblical vision uh it is such because it's right and just for god to do that it's 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 um punishment that is fitting that that, that is appropriate and uh there you know again you get the hesitation with it because it, it sounds extreme uh, but, but I think there are, I think that's the, the biblical picture that we get as, as I'll sketch out. And I think there are the, theological reasons why we should see that uh, going on as well. Absolutely. And no matter which view is true, I, I've heard people say it a lot with, on both sides. Well, that's not just. Well, here's the facts of the matter. Yeah. Anything God does is just. And so yes. if we, you know, maybe we'll see it. I mean, definitely we'll see it, you know, whenever we get to the other side, so to say clearer and, and understand maybe mm -hmm. a lot more because our minds won't be affected by sin. But the point uh, that I'm trying to make is if eternal conscious punishment is true and that's what happens, we cannot say that God's unjust, right? Because everything God does is just. Um, so a absolutely. Uh, Robert, if you want to go ahead and dive in where let's focus on the old Testament. Is there yeah. anywhere okay. in the old Testament where we see eternal conscious uh, punishment? Yeah. So the short answer uh, might surprise you, but um, it, it, it's there's not a strong case that can be made for it from the Old Testament. So if you read any uh, credentialed Old Testament scholar who, who I've read on this issue, regardless of, of where they stand, they will tell you that the Old Testament leaves a lot to be desired in terms of uh, eschatology. Right. So we have a grand total probably of of two passages in the Old Testament where uh, even the, the idea that human beings will be uh, raised from the dead in the future is even presented. And even in both of those texts, I'm thinking of uh, Isaiah 26, 19 and um, Daniel 12, 2, it doesn't present to us a universal, uh, what, what's called sometimes a general resurrection like we get in uh, the book of Revelation and in Jesus' teachings, where both the righteous and the unrighteous universally are raised from the dead. Daniel says... Uh, many will be raised and uh, some will go to um, eternal life and others to eternal contempt. And then in uh, Isaiah 26, uh, it just talks about the resurrection of the righteous. So there's there's kind of a narrow scope and uh, a specific uh, promise given to uh, the, the Jewish people in history of, of coming vindication. But it doesn't spell it out in great detail. And this is one of the places where I think that... Um, the, the conditional immortality position, they, they think that there's a strong case to be made here because you certainly don't have this image very strongly of, of eternal torment. Uh, what you have are uh, promises, uh, uh, prophecies of future judgment, and, and typically what it describes is the death of the unrighteous. They're, they're going to be slaughtered. They're going to be killed. Uh, but then when we get to the New Testament, uh, we'll see that there's there's a, a fuller, bigger picture of a multi-stage future judgment to come. So you get this in again in in um, Matthew's version of the uh, Olivet discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, 
and then also uh, in, in the book of Revelation where Jesus shows up, he, he wipes out the enemies of God's people, um, and then there's a universal resurrection for this grand trial, um, and uh, there, there's a sentence passed where the uh, the righteous are, are welcomed, ushered into the new creation, those whose names were written in, in the book of life. Um, and those who were not are cast into the lake of fire and we're told that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's uh, Revelation uh, chapter 14. And so um, it, it, what's missing in the Old Testament is that, that bigger comprehensive picture. And, and so uh, when I say that the Old Testament leaves a lot to be desired on the question of this, I think it leaves a lot to be desired for, for both my view and for uh, the annihilationist case, be, uh, unless you deny that there's going to be a future universal resurrection. And again, this is sure. something that isn't just just me speaking. This is something that every credentialed Old Testament scholar I know of uh, says that you just you just don't get this full uh, vision of eschatology like you get in the New Testament. You don't find that in the Old Testament. And then what's uh, the, the intertestamental period, the second temple period where there's continued speculation and, and there's development. We believe in progressive revelation. So I think hermeneutically, the wrong place to start is the Old Testament because it doesn't give us that, that full picture. It doesn't have that developed eschatology yet. In the same way it doesn't have a, a developed Christology because Jesus hasn't come on the scene until uh, Matthew chapter one. Uh, it doesn't give us that, that fully developed eschatology either. So we need a we need to start in the New Testament if we if we want to have a, a biblically faithful view. Absolutely. Let, and, and let's go ahead and jump into the New Testament. You mentioned Matthew twenty five, uh, and I just want to go ahead and start reading verse forty one through forty six. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading from the NET here. Um, but anyway, verse forty one says, "Then he will say to those on his left, depart." So, so just to get the context real quick, everybody. We, uh, Jesus is talking about two groups of people, right? Those who are saved, those who did all of these different things. And they will say to him, you know, when did we see you do these? Or, or when did we uh, see you in prison and come feed you? Or, or And things like that. And Jesus says, if you've done this to one of my little ones, you've done it to me. And so this is where he's talking to those that didn't do those things, that, that didn't show good works, basically. And in verse 41, we pick up, it says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not receive me. As a guest, naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not give you whatever you needed? Then he will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did not do it for one of the the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will depart into eternal punishment, for the or but the righteous into eternal life. Now, we were talking on the group chat, and I brought up, and I think one this is one of the verses that really nails this down. I see the Bible as picturing Gehenna, maybe not the punishments in there, but but we'll flush that out later, but Gehenna itself, the lake of fire, it seems to me that the Bible describes this as an eternal place, right? That This is a place that will last uh, forever. Now, I know Chris said that he didn't agree with that, 
and I will let Chris speak for himself whenever he comes on in two weeks with Robert here. So these two guys are going to get together and actually hash some of these things out. So that's going to be really exciting. But but I to me anyway, depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Two questions real quick, Robert. Do you see yeah. this as eternal, like in the sense of this fire is going to last forever? And second question is, what do you think Jesus means here whenever he says that it's been prepared for the devil and his angels? If not, like, we obviously know that sinners are going to go into hell. So what? why isn't this prepared for humans as well? Like, do you see what I'm trying to say there? Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, so you, you have to be careful about making a, a negative inference, right? So just because it says it was prepared for the devil and his angels doesn't mean it wasn't also prepared for with, with, with this purpose, right? Sure. And so, so really what you have here is a, a very great example of, of uh, entering into the conversation in Second Temple Judaism, um, which is the context in which Jesus shows up on the scene and, and Christianity is birthed, of continued speculation and uh, development of eschatology. Uh, specifically here, you have reflection on Daniel 12 too. And in Daniel uh, 12, again, where there's the, the, the hope that uh, many will be resurrected, some to eternal life and some to eternal contempt. And um, it's it's uh, being developed here uh, in connection with other areas that, that Jewish people continue to speculate about, such as the, the future fate of, of Satan and demons, right? So this is all part of this, this development and, and this cosmic uh, eschatological vision of, of what would happen in the future that, again, uh, was was very much alive and and being debated in the in the second temple period. In fact, Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, uh, he divides the different schools of Jewish thought, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, uh, and others, based on how they understood two issues. One is the the relationship between divine providence, which using Greek language, it's about fate and uh, human free will. And on this issue of eschatology, p- particularly, uh, he uses the language of the immortality of the soul and the, and the nature of punishment. And um, understanding that Jewish background really helps us to, to plot the New Testament. This is one of the places where I don't see adequate uh, I- engagement with the historical context from the uh, you know various forms of annihilationism. Um, particularly, uh, the... the uh, Jewish groups that explicitly denied eternal punishment in the sense of eternal torment um, did not believe in a universal resurrection. And Jesus clearly does in this text. They believed in a, in a, a resurrection that was limited in scope. So you put this in, in uh, a number of texts uh, in uh, the intertestamental period, um, uh, the Psalms of Solomon, uh, but, but famously, uh, we know from Jesus' interaction in the Gospels with the Sadducees, they did not believe in resurrection. They, they, death was essentially the end of it. You, you know, your, your greatest hope was to live a fulfilled life in, in this age and for your ancestors to thrive in generations after you and for you to uh, have a good reputation you know, on into the future. There, there was no resurrection. They scoffed at the idea of, of the resurrection. Uh, but here you have universal resurrection, um, some going away into eternal punishment and others into eternal life. And uh, this is something that I've been investigating since I've gotten into this subject. 
I have not been able to find, obviously, the, the New Testament itself is debated ground. So without begging the question, we can't assume our interpretations here. But I have not been able to find a Jewish text where there is expressed the hope in a universal resurrection, where the idea is that the unrighteous will be resurrected and then destroyed. I can't find that anywhere. And I, I even uh, messaged another um, uh, Jewish scholar, uh, David De Silva. Mm-hmm. scholar of second temple judaism new testament scholar as well and i asked him i said Do you, I, I i've been i've been looking for these pseudepigrapha apocrypha dead sea scrolls can't find it am i missing something you know yeah there you go <laughs> am i missing something that, that that i just haven't read he said no i don't know of any where there's a belief in a universal resurrection and the unrighteous are then destroyed so if the new testament is teaching that which i don't think it is um because when we have resurrection language followed by judgment it's eternal punishment or in the book of Revelation, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, uh, so the New Testament would be exceptional if that's what it was teaching, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be presenting us with, with that kind of language. So uh, all that is contextually why I think we are on better historical and exegetical ground, seeing this as testimony to the idea of eternal torment. Um, but, but anyway, and I, and I, again, I don't want to, uh, just go to my my favorite proof text, and, and you know when we we talked to Chris, and I, I'm sure he gave he gave lots of uh, his evidence when he was on before. Uh, we we can hash out uh, some of the other material, but but that that's kind of the the general approach that I would take to this this text do, and to to Revelation. Yeah. Absolutely, I do have some intertestamental texts that I do want to bring up um, be, and, and get okay. your uh, opinion on these. Um, but I just want to ask you something real quick. You mentioned immortality of the soul. And now I've heard a uh-huh. lot of conditional immortality, uh, people that hold to this conditional immortality say that immortality of the soul is a platonic concept. Th- yeah. This is a doctrine yeah. from Plato or whatever. And, and I think Fudge even yeah. says that any, anything like that kind of destroys your arguments for, um, for yeah. anything Christian. It, is immortality of the soul strictly a platonic concept or is this something that we actually see in the Bible? Yeah. So the, the, this is where fudge uh was was pretty pretty weak um so it, it's it's absolutely true that there there's a platonist notion um uh, which which was very widespread in in uh the, the time of the new testament where uh the 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 true self is the immaterial soul and that's you know indestructible eternal you know you know that sort of thing uh that notion of like what i would call innate immortality that that the soul is just made of material that not even god could destroy that's that's unbiblical right so um of of course god could annihilate body and soul maybe we could talk about matthew 10 28 uh here in a little bit but um uh, the question is, and, and this is where the language of conditional immortality uh, can get a little messy because I, I affirm something that I think you could call conditional immortality as well. What is the condition for immortality? It's resurrection, right? So, uh, who's going to be resurrected is the question that I would ask because Paul defines resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think the Jewish sources define resurrection as immortality. Anybody who is the object of resurrection is raised to be made mortal, not to be destroyed again, right? And so um, on the condition of resurrection, we are, human beings are made immortal. So uh, it, there's, there's Fudge's book, The Fire That Consumes, but he also co-authored a book with, I'm going blank on the other author's name, uh, Robert, I think Robert Peterson, called uh, Two Views of Hell. And in it, Peterson responds to Fudge on this, and he says, 
uh, we, you know, correcting fudge because this, this is, uh, this is a caricature of, of the, of the position. It really is. Uh, well, not, not in popular, but in, in scholarly discourse, it's a caricature. Let's put it that way. Um, he says, we don't believe in eternal punishment because of a pre-commitment to the innate immortality of the soul. Rather, we believe in the immortality of the soul because the New Testament teaches uh, the universal resurrection, right? So th- that's the point that okay. we need to make. It's it's not grounded in in some innate quality of the human soul, as though it it itself is is immortal and indestructible. But it's grounded in the reality that there's going to be a universal resurrection. That the the New Testament says that again, uh, Book of Revelation that 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 uh, will result in uh, the unrighteous who have been resurrected suffering e- eternal punishment uh, in the lake of fire. Okay, so that actually makes clears things up for me a little bit. So because the unjust are raised, because we don't hold to yes. a, or we do hold to a general resurrection, a universal resurrection, yes. the wicked and the just both will be bodily raised, both stand before yes. judgment and all these things. So because the, the wicked are bodily raised, that in and of itself constitutes immortality. Yes, yes. And, okay. and that's that's the... That's an argument that, that I would make. I think you can justify that in Second Temple Judaism. That is, okay. that is what, um, and, and, and I would point interested readers. It's, it's scholarly tome. It's a big 800 page book. The, still the, the fullest study on, uh, the idea of, uh, resurrection is N.T. Wright's book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And he goes through every Jewish text to show that, and he shows this, and this is from page 164. Resurrection, in fact, is one form or type of immortality, a new bodily life in which there can be no more death. So by making all people the objects of resurrection, I think the New Testament is telling us that all people are made immortal in that sense. And I, I would want to nuance that because um, I, I, I think that the, the Bible is happy to use the image of that sort of immortal existence uh, by calling the second death because it's it's not really living. You know, I you and I were were talking and I said it's it's sort of like uh, with the Walking Dead, the the zombies, right? They're they're animated, they're moving, but they're not really human anymore. That's not real living. You know that that sort of thing. So we can right. call that death, we can call that immortality, but but we need to discuss what we mean by that. It's it's not a quality of life. It's not life in the in the uh, flourishing sense that the righteous will enjoy in the new creation, enjoying God's presence. It's still right. exile away from God's presence, and so it's substance living, but it but it is uh, a kind of immortality, I guess. Right. It's like degrees of life. What we were talking about, you yeah. know, on the group yeah. chat is, and, and that is true that the old, you know, Old Testament Jews thought of death in a sense of a dehumanizing, in a sense, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, absolutely, man. I just wanted, like I said, I just wanted to clear that up. Um, and, and that actually brought a lot of clarity. So because the, or the unjust are bodily raised that therefore they are raised immortal. So absolutely, man. Um, I, let's go, if you want to, you've brought it up a couple times and I want to go to revelation, uh, 14 and we can just start in, uh, verse six and says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead and he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He declared in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has arrived and worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
Verse 8, a second angel followed the first, declaring, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great city. She made all the nations drink of the wine of her immoral passion. Verse 9, a third angel followed the first two, declaring in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and takes the mark on his forehead or his hand, that person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath, and he will be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb, and the smoke from their, tor or the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever, and those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night along with anyone who receives the mark of his name. This requires a steadfast endurance of the saints, those who obey God's commandments, and hold to their faith in Jesus. Robert, what is going on in this text? Because it definitely yeah. does seem like those who, even if we take this just literally, right, just in the literal sense, yeah. anyone who worships the beast in his image, well, that would include everybody. Yeah. That I mean, honestly, to me, this doesn't just seem like, you know, about the last days. Like, this seems like it could be, you know, anyone who has not followed Christ is in a sense technically worshiping the beast, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So with that being said, you know, they take the mark on their forehead, their hand, that person will also drink the wine of God's anger. This is the same wrath that has been given to the devil and his angels. And so Robert, if you would mm -hmm. just flush that out, uh, because it does say right here in front of the holy angels and in front of the lamb, they're going to be tortured with fire and sulfur, and the smoke of that torture will go up forever and ever. Sorry to keep yes. rambling, bro. Uh, but yeah, go ahead yeah, yeah. and flush this out for us. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot here. And yeah. uh, in, in that article that I shared with you, I, I spent most of it dealing with this passage because I, mm -hmm. I, I do think this is the very strongest evidence for, for my view. And again, I, I think this needs to be given its, its proper weight. A lot of times people are nervous about the book of Revelation because it's highly stylized. Uh, filled with imagery. It's, it's apocalyptic literature. So that's, it's difficult to interpret sometimes. There's, there, there's, you know, uh, kind of hidden meanings behind images and, and it takes sure. a little more work than some of the more propositional literature that, that, that we find in the Bible. But, uh, I don't think it ends up being unclear and I don't think it makes it a less reliable vehicle for theology. So, um, I, I think we need to, we need to give it its, its due weight. And I, I think this is pretty unavoidable. In fact, um, I think Chris Nate has a lot of integrity in acknowledging that what's depicted here is eternal conscious torment. Um, he then, you know, will make a move that I'm not sure I understand how he validates it to, to say, even though that's, that's what the picture is, John wants, essentially wants his audience to, to come away with, with an annihilationist perspective. And, and I, I, I'd love to press him on that when, when we get him on because I, I'm, I'm I'm still not understanding how, how that move is justified. But um, what, what they'll do is um, they'll, they'll recognize that the background of this text is from uh, Isaiah chapter 35, where, which is a prophecy of Edom's destruction, which took place in history. And uh, the, the imagery of the smoke uh, going up forever and ever was, was basically a sign of their complete ruin, the complete destruction of the city. Um, and so therefore they say, look, it's not talking about people being tormented in the Old Testament passage that John is taking this imagery from. Therefore, he can't be talking about that here. He must be talking about annihilation. That's that's kind of the way the argument goes. Uh, but that doesn't work for a number of reasons, because it, it doesn't pay attention to the way that John uh, remolds and repurposes that imagery. So in in that passage in, in Isaiah 35, and it's 
it's it's taking imagery going all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, right? This is this is being used, and this is used typologically throughout the New Testament for the the judgment of the wicked. Um, there, it talks about the fire not ever being quenched. But here, um, instead of talking about the fire not being quenched, it says that the people who are being tormented will never have rest, right? So John changes that. Instead of talking about um, a, a fire that, that won't be extinguished, uh, John talks about people who will never have rest from this torment. So so he changes it up, right? Um, and uh, he, he applies it to individuals. So it's not... Uh, uh, the uh, later on in chapter 19, he'll he'll talk about Babylon and the smoke from her going up, and that's sure. an image for the destruction of the system that, that Babylon represents. Um, but here he's talking about worshippers who are tormented day and night, forever and ever. So we can't flatten out those distinct images. There's there's Babylon as a system, which is this corrupt world power that that has led to the persecution of the Lamb's people throughout the book of Revelation. And there are those who are complicit in it, who have followed the system by taking the beast's mark. They too will suffer, but but their suffering is, is going to be eternal, restless, ceaseless punishment. And the imagery here is by fire. So uh, I, I I think that uh, the, the best attempts at, at addressing this, I, I just, I don't think they get off the ground. And in fact, if you, if you look at the uh, exegetical commentaries on Revelation, and there are a few that uh, hold to an annihilationist view, they just assert it. They don't try to validate their view. They just they just assert it, or or essentially the idea is that well, yeah, John is using very colorful imagery, but it's hyperbole. Uh, of course, he doesn't believe that people will actually be tormented forever and ever. And right. and there there are moves like that that people make. Um, I think that John is is being very explicit here uh, for a reason. I think that. If you follow the verb tenses, um, he he switch. There's a switch to the future tense in in the interpretation here to to, to provide for us a commentary on on the, the meaning of the imagery. What does it mean that they will uh, they will drink of the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed, meaning undiluted? Um, uh, it means they will be tormented uh, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So this is the wrath of God par excellence, like like none ever experienced in history before. This is the, the consummate wrath of God, the righteous judgment for following uh, the beast rather than following the lamb. And and you brought up Revelation 19. I just want to go ahead and read that real quick just yeah. to get a full picture here. Uh, just starting in verse 1, uh, Revelation 19, 1. After these things, I heard what sounded like the loud voice of a vast throng in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and just. See, that's what we were talking about earlier, right? He, everything yep, God yep. does is just. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. So I want to pause here. And this is that system, right? This is the yes. what the Babylonian, the mystery Babylon, this is that system of evil, correct? Yes. Okay. So uh, let's see here. Who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and has avenged the blood of his servants poured out by her own hands. Then a second time, the crowd shouted, Hallelujah. And here's the smoke imagery. The smoke rises from her forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures threw themselves to the ground and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, Robert, you definitely don't believe that the the system ha is going to be tortured forever and ever, right? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But but <laughs> it, it, it does seem like if this this is represented, this system is represented as a city 
and also is represented as a great whore. So here's my first question for you real quick. In this system, would that include, if this is a system, would that include the people who represent that system? Yeah, so that's what we had in chapter 14. Here, okay. here the focus is on the destruction of the system, right? That, that it represents the nation of Rome and its corrupted religious system. Uh, it's, it's power hungry leadership. I think there's, there's a tremendous amount of warning here for our contemporary culture. I think there's huge relevance for this that, that God is going to destroy uh, these sorts of systems and, um, and I think it, it's, it's very relevant for, for American Christians to, to, to ask the question whether or not we've been in bed with the whore or if we've been following the lamb. But, um, the, but, but here you have a focus on, uh, the judgment of the great whore, the, the great prostitute. And so it's focused on what she represents. And so if you go back, uh, earlier, I believe it's chapter 17, if I, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, she's described with imagery, uh, depicting the goddess Roma, who was the, the uh, patroness deity of the city of Rome. So the great prostitute represents Rome. And so what's being promised here is that, uh, this, this, this coming persecutor, this, this system, this, this state sponsored persecution that's going to adversely affect the churches that John is writing to, who he addresses in chapters two and three. Uh, God is going to judge that. He's going to destroy that. They, they can look forward to that happening. Um, and so if it includes people here, which there, there might be some validation for it, it, it would be a kind of metaphor that we, we call um, synecdoche, where there, there's part for the whole, right? So that uh, there, there is potential for saying that there, there's a way to identify uh, not just uh, the, the city of Rome, but everybody who was complicit as well. And there would be validation for that by looking back at chapter 14. But I think what's in, in, in scope here is the destruction of that system, the that power will not be eternal. It's not as uh, omniscient as it imagines that it is. Uh, God is going to have the last word. He's going to wipe it out. And God's people are going to uh, remember that forever and ever. They're going, to, they're going to be able to celebrate that. But that doesn't invalidate what John also saw in chapter 14, where those who worship the beast in his image are tormented forever and ever. Not just their smoke goes up forever and ever, but they're tormented forever and ever. And and if we if we uh, play the two images off against each other, I think we're going to do violence to what John intended to communicate. So we need to be careful not to do that. Right. No, absolutely. I agree. So let me ask you this just kind of off topic. Well, I mean, it's not really off topic, but kind of off of that. I add, and, and, and here's the thing that I have kind of noticed. Let me go back to Revelation uh, 20. Is it 20 or 20, 21? All right, then I, so this is describing the new heavens and the new earth. Then I saw yes. a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is, hu- is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. So here's, going back to Revelation 14, if they are tormented in front of the, pre, or in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels forever and ever, how can John then say in chapter 21, death, crying, pain, all of these things have ceased to exist? If they're actually in the presence of God, 
you know, being tortured, being tormented, like I said, how can John say that all of these different things have ceased to exist? Yeah. So, so let me give you a harder, a harder challenge first, and then I'll answer yours. Sure. I'm going to, sure. I'm going to deflect and then come back to it. Uh, right, later on, it talks about, yeah, yeah. Later on, so in, in, in verse eight, it says the cowardly, faithless, polluted, murderers, fornicators, pursuers, their place will be in the lake of fire. So this is in the new creation. They're okay. not gone. They're, they're still out there in this place called lake of fire. And then in chapter 22, it says that they're outside the, the gates of this uh, heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, right? So, so, uh, out, outside of the dogs or the sorcerers, et cetera, you know, all that language. So my question is, if they're annihilated, how can they be outside? Right. You know, so to me, that's a harder problem now, but but your problem is well taken. Your, 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 your point is well taken. Also, uh, what, what is, uh, being communicated here? Uh, God is, uh, promising, Jesus is promising the, the source of this, this vision that, uh, what has threatened God people will be done away with. So when it says that death will be no more, there will be no more crying or pain, he's talking about for the Lamb's people. They will finally be comforted. Uh, throughout the book of Revelation, they've been threatened uh, for their allegiance to Jesus with death. Well, now there there is no power. All, all rival powers have been subdued. Uh, death is no longer a threat against them. They've been resurrected to, to immortality. Um, they will they will not be threatened to death any longer. They will enjoy God's presence fully. There are no enemies left to be subdued. The last enemy has has been done away with. Uh, who is death? You you get this in uh, Isaiah twenty five and quoted in in First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen. So so that's sure. what the promise is about. This isn't a uh, dealing with a, the ontological existence or uh, of the abstraction called death. Um, and and that's another thing too is. Is we have to be careful that we're we're not using reductionistic definitions of uh, a concept that is is bigger and 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 broadly theological in the Bible. So uh, death is a huge a huge concept that goes all the way back to uh, uh, Genesis two and three with with the warning and then and then the curse of uh, uh, against Adam and Eve for for transgressing the law. Uh, when God says. Uh, if you eat of this, you, of the tree, you will surely die. What, what, what's he talking about? A lot of, a lot of people have debated that because he doesn't immediately kill them. So the question is, did he have grace on them? Or is this the introduction of the possibility of death or what? Well, if, if we keep reading in scripture, we see that, um, uh, based on the fact that Adam and Eve were enjoying a covenantal relationship with God, uh, death is a metaphor used later on, Deuteronomy chapter 30, um, and then in Ezekiel 37. It's used as a metaphor for exile because uh, in God's presence is fullness of life. Uh, he is the source of life. And for human beings to live as they were intended, uh, they need to enjoy a close fellowship with God. And by being kicked out of the garden, they're, they're, they're an, uh, an archetype of Israel who is going to be sent away into the death of exile for for their transgression of the covenant. And then they're going to be restored to life when Yahweh brings them back into the land. That's what the imagery of the resurrection of the Valley of Dry Bones is all about in Ezekiel chapter 37. So I think they were killed just as God said they were going to be. They died. They were sent away into exile. They were sent out of the life-giving presence of God. 
I don't think that's about the introduction of biological death. I think that's about the introduction of death as exile away from the presence of God. Beings were created to enjoy his presence. Well, here, death will be one more. They will never be exiled again from God's presence. Um, and, and that was remedied, uh, Paul says in, that's why Paul would say in, in Ephesians chapter two, before we were brought near to God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Why? Because we weren't uh, following God. We were following the prince of the power of the air, right? We were uh, under the lordship of a rival deity, namely Satan. But, but God brings us near. He rescues us. He, he grants us newness of life by faith in Jesus. And we're, we're brought into fellowship with him. We're, we're raised to life where we're, we, we're, we're made new. And so this is the ultimate realization of that promise here. So that, I, I think that death is a bigger, it, uh, theological category than, than sometimes it's allowed. I think that we have to be careful not to be reductionistic about it and make it about the lost biological life. It's about fellowship or lack thereof with, with God. Sure, absolutely. We, and bringing up death, I just—I I know I keep just jumping to verses, but I, we're yeah. running out of time. And I do I, like—I wish we could go on all night, to be honest, because yeah, this yeah. is just so intriguing. But but you you mentioned death, and so I want to bring up John eight uh, fifty. Uh, let's do okay. yeah yeah John eight. Um, let's see. Yeah, let's just go ahead and start in verse fifty. It says I'm not trying to get praise for myself. There's one who demands it. And he also judges our 51. I tell you the solemn truth. If anyone obeys my teaching, he will never see death. 52. Then the Judeans responded. Now we know you're possessed by a demon. Both Abraham and the prophets died. And yet you say, if anyone obeys my teaching, he will never experience death. You aren't greater than our uh, father Abraham who died, are you? And the prophets died too. Who do you claim to be? Right. And so, and I think you're absolutely right, Robert. Like going back to Revelation, you know, or 21, death does not exist anymore for us. Right. Because, because of these promises, because of faith in Christ, because of what Christ did for us, we no longer have to fear that. And so I I just, you know, not, not really to kind of jump on John 8 because I do want to get to this passage and and the pseudepigrapha. But to your point, you know, about death and that we don't, we will never have to experience that again. I think that's the promise, you know, of the New Testament. This is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I mean, it's just, it's it's beautiful. Um, So, all right, I have here, for those who's watching on uh, camera, the pseudepigrapha, and I just kind of, I was reading through it, just skimming through it, and I, I want to read this whole thing, to be honest. But, the, man, whenever I got <laughs> this, I did not think that this was going to be another Bible. And I got two of them, right? So I got two more yeah, Bibles yeah. to go through. Um, but anyway, so I just want to – I've got four verses here, but I want to – let me – let's go to uh, four, uh, the fourth book of Ezra, and it's going to be chapter 2. Okay. Yeah, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Woe to you, Assyria, who concealed the unrighteous in your midst. O wicked nation, remember what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah, whose land lies in lumps of pitch and heaps of ashes. So I will do to those who have not listened to me, uh, yeah. says the Lord Almighty. And then, and then real yep. quick, in the same chapter, in verse uh, 14, he says, call, O call heaven and earth to witness, for I left out evil and created good because I live, says Lord, and this is talking about yeah. the kingdom, you know, to come. So anyway, Robert, mm-hmm. what is your take on this? Is this kind of like what's uh, yeah. what Peter's talking about whenever he's talking about, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and how we see yeah. that? And also, I really loved your point. I don't want to give too much away in the article. 
Is that is that published yet, or is that going to be no, published? It, it, it's forth. It's forthcoming. Feel free to okay. yeah, say okay. whatever you want about it. Yeah, it, it's fine. Yeah. Okay, but but I so you made a point with typology, and I think that yes. uh, I think you made an excellent point. Yeah. Is that in typology we cannot assume that what is being said is, is it right? There there is a greater, there's a fulfillment yes. of these things, kind of like the Old Testament typified Jesus. And, and Jesus yes. as the anti-type is that greater fulfillment. We can't really expect the same exact things that are being said. To say. So, so to get back to uh, Fourth Ezra, do you think that this is? I mean, granted, this isn't scripture. This isn't authoritative, mm-hmm. but it does give us a good look at what the you know intertestamental Jews thought. What do you think about this? And and would this be kind of like what Peter was doing in his epistles with Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's very much comparable to to what you have in uh, I believe it's in Peter three eleven or two eleven one of those yeah. um, two eleven I think it is uh, where where he talks about them uh, being an example of of uh, what will happen to the ungodly by being reduced to ashes. Uh, if if we press that and say that that there's a um, a little a literal repetition of that, I think that we're we're doing something that that the authors didn't intend for us to to do with it uh, again this is the development of typology um where where we need to pay attention to how this is working this uh, revelation is a really great place where this is illustrated um if if we press it for for literalness then we, we run into a number of problems because sodom and gomorrah um it, it was a city but it you know obviously there were there were people in there who were destroyed and it was ruined but guess what's going to happen those people are going to be resurrected right uh, but that hadn't happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And actually, if we keep on reading at Fourth Ezra, and I don't have the references on hand, I wasn't prepared for this, but sure, uh, sure. There, there's there's not a debate about this among scholars. Uh, Fourth Ezra teaches eternal torment um, uh, later on, and, and I could get the references to you and, and, and share that with you later. Yeah. And, and maybe we'll bring it up when, when we come back on. But um, yeah. it teaches eternal torment. So the, uh, a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in this language of, of finding a type there and they're being reduced to ashes is not viewed as antithetical to the idea of eternal torment. Fourth Esper has this image and it's explicit about eternal torment late. And again, this isn't debated among, uh, uh, among the, the scholars. So, um, what, what we're seeing here is a warning. You, you, you want to, um, you want to scare your audience. You want to tell your audience something horrible is going to happen. If you continue to act like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know what happened to them. Do you expect something less to happen to you? Well, well, no, of course not. You shouldn't. That would be foolish. And then as, as these authors go on to fill it out, fourth Ezra being a, a really great example, it fills that out in terms of resurrection and then eternal torment. Uh, and I, I wish I had that reference on hand, but 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 I just don't. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll get it. And I I hate appealing to scholars without references to primary texts, but it is in sure. there. I just don't know it off the top of my head, and I, I can I can share that with you another time. Yeah, whenever you get it to me, man, I'll, I can put it in the description yeah. uh, for people to see. Cool. Absolutely. Um, in, in the time that we've got dwelling down, I did. So I raised the point in our uh, group chat, and I wanted to to focus on that for the remainder of time if you want to, Robert. Um, degrees sure. of punishment, right? We see in Luke 12, yeah. 47 and, and 48 that there are, well, in my, in my mind, in hell, there will be different degrees. Like it will be more tolerable for Sodom, uh, you know, than, than the, that generation that Jesus was preaching to. So my question, Robert, how is one's 
how is one person's punishment more severe than another's if all potentially face yeah. the same fate in Gehenna, namely burning forever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a problem also for conditional immortality. If the ultimate end okay. is death for everybody, then, then we're still asking the same question. What what some in that view will say is that there there is torment for a period of time, and then mm-hmm. the there you're eventually annihilated, and so that's the way they would solve it. Um, but but that's speculative because the, the the scriptures they they would have to admit don't ever say that right when it sure. describes the the temporal duration of torment it uses uh, adjectives like eternal or forever and ever right not not for a period of time and then follows annihilation um, and so I but I would have to to make a similar move and say well in, in some way it, it will be worse you know for a guy like Hitler than it will be for my grandma who never believed in in the gospel right you know and and so she was a sweet lady she didn't she didn't um you know commit genocide against against uh a whole race or something like that so obviously there there will be uh some righteous retribution uh consonant with with uh uh individual guilt and 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 that sort of thing uh but the, the bible doesn't frankly fill in the details of that now when you look at texts like that though like from jesus where it talks about it uh, being worse for some than for others. Um, you get this um, uh, elsewhere in, I think, in Mark 9, where, where Jesus says, you know, those who uh, lead uh, one of these little ones astray, it will be better for them if they had a millstone yeah. tied around their neck and they were cast in the sea. Well, think yeah. about the rhetoric that's going on there. Better for them than violent death by drowning, um, right? So, so how is it going to be worse if they're just going to die a violent death also? And so yeah. I think Jesus' rhetoric there, I think Jesus' rhetoric in, in Matthew 10, 28 is actually, even though those are considered good proof texts sometimes for annihilationism or conditional immortality, I think if we're careful and trying to parse out Jesus' rhetoric, it's actually telling us that something worse than a violent death is in their fate. Now, it doesn't say right there that that worse thing is eternal torment, but then you right. get that later in, in, in Matthew 25, and you get that elsewhere in Revelation 14 and and 20 uh and whatnot so uh that's that's how i would respond to that but admittedly i, I think every view has to speculate a little bit there because uh the bible wasn't written to to satisfy all of our theological curiosities so uh sure. we, we have to be content with what we have with that so. absolutely and, and mark nine forty three. just for those listening it says if you if you're right or if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it is better for you to enter into life crippled than to have two hands and go into hell to the unquenchable fire if your foot causes you... Or wait. Uh, oh, wait. For, it was yeah. 42. My bad. If anyone causes one yes. of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a huge millstone tied around his neck and to be thrown into the bottom of the seat. Violent death. How would it be better You know, if they're going to burn yes. and, and, and be annihilated? No, absolutely, man. I understand. And and so just just a little background then. I So what started this whole conversation was, you know, Chris, I invited him on my show. And ever since then, I've kind of been on the fence with conditional immortality, yeah. eternal conscious punishment. And so that what I just want to get a full picture of everything before making a decision. And, and, and Robert, I yeah. really thank you for coming on uh, to give uh, the, the eternal conscious punishment view, the biblical view of it. Uh, for those who don't know you, man, where, where can people find more of more of Robert Wiesner at? And take a little time to yeah. plug if you want to, bro. Yeah, sure. So you, you can go on to uh, my church website, KenmoreBaptistChurch.com, and you can you can listen to some sermons if if that's your kind of thing. 
Um, I have an article published in the Westminster Theological Journal on predestination and Second Temple Judaism. Uh, forthcoming article on hell and revelation. You can look out for that. And then uh, thanks to Chris Day. Again, I said he's a friend, but uh, got me hooked up. So I'm going to be able to uh, publish in, in a uh, book that was just a uh, proposal that was just accepted with InterVarsity Press. That's a dialogue on hell. So yeah, that's that's, that's awesome. exciting. And, and that's going to require some new research. So uh, you can find me on, on Facebook and I do a little bit of blogging with my friend all right man well robert i really appreciate coming on dude i'm looking so forward to having you and chris on in two weeks two weeks so make sure you guys catch us out then next week we got nct and mid-act dispensationalism what is that about we'll go we'll we'll do that next week on csg thank you guys so much good night god bless and i hope you enjoyed the show see ya